0: Hello, friends, freaks, nerds, and geeks, all those of you unabashedly burning in the ephemeral flames of existence right alongside me. I'm your host, Jay Van Veen, and you're listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This?, your weekly comic book podcast. At this stage in the show, I think we could probably make an official Why Did You Make Me Read This? drinking game. Take a shot every time I mention noir. Everyone has their own interests, right? Right? Different genres inherently spark interest in different people. Some people love the sprawling futurism of sci-fi. Others are infatuated with the dark labyrinths of horror. And many are taken in by the allure of romance. And you know, I can dig all those genres, honestly. But at my core, I'm a noir guy. I have a noir core. Noir core. Sounds like a band where all the Members are dressed up in sharp suits or black dresses, smoking cigarettes and drinking bourbon while playing hardcore music, something I'd probably be into now that I'm thinking about it. I've done a deeper dive into noir previously. Listen to the Black Sad episode if you're interested in hearing that. My friend Brian and I explored kind of the quintessential and defining elements of the genre, and he does a great job kind of elucidating what those are, but I don't want to keep hitting you over the head with the blackjack of noir. I'll skip the pageantry I typically like to dress my words up in and instead give you a quote that I think boils noir down to its bedrock. Roman noir author Jim Thompson said that in noir, nothing is as it seems. You'll find out over the course of this comic that those words ring true and anchor this story firmly in that world. This book tells a tale of two cultures colliding. On one side, we have an outfit of big-city Italian mobsters with their pinstripe suits, Thompson submachine guns, and big-city swagger. And on the other, we have some Appalachian outlaws with their overalls, 12-gauge shotguns, and backwoods bravado. Two groups of fellas with a lot of superficial differences, but holding the undeniable commonality of a propensity for extreme violence. In the middle of all this, is one laid-back city slicker with good looks and a heavy drinking problem. Yeah, old handsome Lou Perlow has really stepped in at this time. You know, he was supposed to broker a deal between these two maniac factions, but somehow ends up with both of them pissed off to the point of putting him in their crosshairs. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Lou has bitten off more than he can chew. And he's also at risk of getting his own head bitten off. Maybe by the hillbilly gangsters he's trying to strike a deal with, Maybe by the mafiosos from back home he's failing to appease. And maybe by that massive, bloodthirsty creature that's been ripping men apart and stalking him from out in those deep, dark country woods. Volume One, written by Brian Azarello, illustrated by Eduardo Riso, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, and colors by Christian Rossi. I hate to say it, but the leading man of this here yarn is kinda my type of guy. What do I mean by that? Well, while I really don't want to romanticize self-destruction, I can't help but recognize something in it. And our protagonist here today. Well, he's the type of fella has some bad habits that are burning his world down around him. You know, I never really went in for the square-jawed, morally upstanding, unwaveringly ethical, good-postured Boy Scout type of protagonist. Superman's cape always seemed to flap in the winds of boredom to me. And even though I have from time to time found myself standing up for Captain America, his cut was always a little too clean for my tastes. When you get right down to it, I suppose I'd rather shoot the shit with Jessica Jones than shoot the breeze with Wonder Woman. I'd rather meet Logan for a pint than sip a soda water with Scott Summers. Heading down to Noonan's Sleazy Bar for a pint with Tommy Monahan and the boys sounds like a good time to me, I guess is what I'm getting at. Flaws, they make a character interesting. And the fella we're following through this here yarn, he's got those in spades. Handsome Lou Perlow is a tall drink of water with a head full of slick black hair and a drinking problem that would put a Bukowski character to shame. He's a low-level knock-around guy for the mob, looking to move up in the criminal underworld he moves in. He's been sent south on a mission from his boss, and when we find Lou, well, let's just say that things are already slipping through his fingers. We'll get back to Lou in a minute. Right now I want to talk about the opening pages to this here tale. It opens up showing us three G-men walking around some backwoods at night, looking for illegal moonshine stills to bust up. And quickly on display is Azzarello's ability for writing snappy noir dialogue and ceaseless wordplay. Agent Nash, please refrain from your usual negative bullshit, one fed says to another. Fuck your refrain responds Nash. The chorus is, we are all in the damn doghouse with Hoover, because we wouldn't fuck him, so now he's fucking us. And it ain't too long before these fellows come across what they're looking for, and as they're poised to take sharp axes to dull metal of the makeshift spirits distillery, an interruption growls itself into the scene eerie yellow eyes break up the blackness of the night around them, and before they know, these men are being torn apart between panels by something monstrous and hairy that descends upon them from out in the night. So this opening hook functions to tell us three things. One, this story is taking place in the back country of Virginia. Two, it's set during Prohibition era in America, Three, this ain't gonna be your run-of-the-mill noir caper. Something mythical and deadly is haunting the hills of this Appalachian antidote. Now let's check back in on Lou. When we're first introduced to Lou, he is walking out of his small Virginian hotel room, hungover and wondering where the hell his wallet is. Lou blacked out the night before, a common occurrence for our dipsomaniacal leading man, and the morning's made worse by a call coming from back home. Lou works for Joe Mazzaria. That's Joe the boss, Mazzaria. Joe is someone you very much don't want to make angry, and right now, he's spitting venom at Lou. See, Joe is a boss of one of the five families that constitute the New York Mafia. And recently, Joe got his hands on a few mason jars worth of Virginian moonshine, and Joe, well, Joe figures, with booze this good in a time where everyone wants booze and no one can get their hands on it... Well, that's just a license to print some big bootlegging bucks. So Joe the Boss sends Handsome Lou down to make a deal with the bootlegging boys in Virginia, dollar signs in mind, and lo and behold, or should I say, Lou and behold? No. No, I shouldn't say that. Lo and behold, these hillbillies don't want nothing to do with these big city gangsters. But Joe the Boss doesn't want to hear that. He tells Lou to get back up in those hills and get some goddamn white lightning coming back to New York. So Lou steps out to meet the day, but first hits the local slop shop to grab a bite before his mission begins. As a plate of southern-style biscuits and gravy gets slapped onto the table, Lou remarks, Not the color I was expecting. What color were you looking for? asks the fellow runs the joint. Any, says Lou. And this bit of fun dialogue not only showcases Azzarello's ability to write noir repartee, but further functions to highlight the discrepancy between the big city New York style Lou comes from and the humble country culture he's currently in. I mean, that's made pretty apparent by the modest clothes the town folk are wearing, being juxtaposed by Lou's three-piece suit fedora and wingtip shoes, but hey, it's fun dialogue, so why not throw it in there? The story starts heating up as Lou's offer to buy high volumes of bootleg spirits from the local shiners gets rejected and quick. Hiram Holt is the man behind the mash liquor, and he's most certainly a man to be taken seriously. Built like a brick shithouse with a long scar running across his face and over his missing eye, Hiram is a man who knows what he wants and what he does not. He's the damn Peterfamilius, and we'll get introduced to the rest of the whole clan in a little bit, but for now, Hiram shows Lou just exactly how uninterested he is in Joe's offer to buy his shine. Hiram takes Lou down to one of his stills and gives him a look inside. Upon entering the shack, Lou sees a few dismembered corpses strewn about, a grisly sight to behold, like something out of a horror movie. Remember those fellows in the beginning? Seems like maybe whatever was out in those woods might have something to do with these country outlaws. Hey. Hiram punctuates his sanguine point and tells Lou, this is what happens to dumb shits want to fuck with my business. And Lou, he heads for the hills. I mean, he heads out of the hills. I, look, the dude just wants to get gone and quick and who can blame him? There's a lot of mystery surrounding this whole family. We see some of the members of it running around in the woods up to God knows what covered in blood sometimes, and Holt, he has a slew of children, mostly all grown. His daughter, Tempest, lives up to her name by raining down deceit, lust, and bloodshed as she moves through this tale. Her and her brother Enos share lycanthropic sensibilities as the story unfolds, but a lot of who is what and where and when remains kind of nebulous as this story unfolds. Then there's their other brother, Fry, and Tucker, their brother-in-law, and these two are more interested in wheeling and dealing than transmutation and nighttime debauchery. They're the ones who go behind Father's back to make a deal with Lou and the Italians. A deal that's interrupted when Tucker gets his head ripped off by the werewolf when he's trying to run a truckload of white lightning across state lines. And remember, folks, this here ain't just all big city gangsters and hillbilly outlaws. Something much more sinister lurks out in those dark woods. Another thing about the story is that it's a bit hard to decipher what's going on with the werewolf set. We know Enos is definitely moonlighting as a mythical monster, and Tempest, well, she damn sure seems like she might make with the yellow eyes and razor teeth come nighttime. But are they the only members of the whole family that get their grizzly going? And are they controlled by Hiram as they dish out hellish retribution? At one point, we do find out that Enos and Tempest are actually adopted members of the Holt family, so maybe their own origins hold something quite different than the rest of the world they grew up in. All this is kept purposely hazy and indistinct as we go through the story, the way Azarello likes to keep things. Threads connected to points we can't see, dripping noir and frenzied horror. Fuck Yeah. Now let's not forget about old Lou. You guys miss him yet? I do, huh? He's a good shit, eh? I mean, yeah, he goes on benders that would make Hemingway balk, but we don't need to bust his chops too much, do we? After all, he's already in deep waters, which are starting to boil around him. Back in town, a few carloads of New York Italian mafiosos come rolling in, and the only way these fellas could stick out anymore is if they were wearing bright-colored clown suits and riding tricycles down the thoroughfare. Fat Tony other Tony, Ducky, and a handful of other goons are joining the party. They're here because Joe the boss thought maybe Handsome Lou needed some help. Mob members and their nicknames. It's adorable Uh, and intimidating. Please don't kill me. All you made members of the mafia that undoubtedly listen to my podcast, I'm sorry. So now we got a big crew of New York gangsters, who are going to undoubtedly mix it up with these hillbilly outlaws, and we got at least one giant werewolf running around ripping people apart, and we got one guy trying to hold all this chaos together, but he just can't help himself but hitting the bottle harder than anyone ever should. The stress and anxiety of this situation would be enough to make any man drink but Lou Fella, getting blacked out drunk never solved anyone's problems. I can tell you that with unequivocal certainty. And when Lou is blotto, you know that word? Blotto? Fucking great word that is. When Lou is deep down under the influence, he has nightmares. An unsettling scape of blacks and reds that lets you know Lou has left consciousness behind and entered the slumberscape of the deepness under the waking mind. And what waits for Lou here? is visions of his little sister, Annabelle. See, when Lou and Belle, as he calls her, were little kids, they were playing down by the river. Lou made this little makeshift raft and his sister wanted to ride in it, so Lou set his sister adrift and watched in horror as her laughter turned into cries when the raft was turned upside down and his little sister was lost under the black waters. Unresolved trauma manifesting as severe vice, a tale as old as time, and Lou is living it day to day. And speaking of Lou's vice, Lou wakes up out of a blackout and finds himself in a grotesque setting, something like a Jackson Pollock in a slaughterhouse. Dead mafiosos, dead hillbillies, some shot, some torn absolutely to shreds, Lou panics as he tries to piece things together, and his mind hovers over the brink of shattering as the specter of his little sister follows him out of his nightmares and into the real world, whispering to her corporeal big brother, Don't you see it, Lou? You're drowning. But not in water. Or hell. Even booze. We get a splash page of Lou waking up to the death and mayhem around him. You're drowning in blood his ghostly sister tells him as she raises her hands to behold the death that's soaking the ground around them. And things just keep escalating as the story goes on. More high-level gangsters come from New York. The Holt clan doubles down in its resolution and violence, fighting it out with the mob on Main Street, driving down twisting country roads as the two factions unload bullets on each other, werewolves hitting the scene to help even the odds, and dispatch some gangsters in absolutely gruesome fashion. And Eduardo Riso, he sells it all through his artwork. The Argentinian comic artist has been a long-time collaborator with Brian Azzarillo, and the two seem to really work well in a symbiotic fashion, both playing off each other's strength and forming something better than the sum of their parts. I once read in an interview with Brian Azzarello that he really doesn't give Riso much in terms of direction. I mean, some writers break down every panel of a page, detailing each nuance they want represented in the ink, essentially crafting the artist's work with their own words. And while each partnership certainly works differently and has its own dynamics... As Rello has said, he just gives kind of an overall idea of what's happening, plus his dialogue, and then just lets Riso go to work. And as for Riso's style, it's very much of the cartoonist variety. And I don't mean that all this havoc and death is told through some Disney-looking characters, although now that I think about that, it'd be kind of fun to see. But Riso works with looser lines and creates almost caricatures of characters on the page of his comics. It's a distinct style that's pretty far from realism, but still works in a story like this. And his horror doesn't shy away from brutality either, as the giant beast of the werewolf tears men apart, fangs piercing eyes, faces getting mangled, throats being torn, heads are flying here. Literally. Yes, this story is a booze-drenched, anxiety-riddled nightmare turned through horror and noir, and it runs at a breakneck pace pretty much the entire time. And none of the characters on the pages here are really all that sympathetic. Both sides housing bastards who don't shy away from violence and malevolence. And as for our man Lou, he definitely ain't the worst— but he's mixed up in everything and making as many bad decisions as a fellow could make and made worse by his bad habits. But old Lou, he sticks in there. He keeps moving when most of us would turn tail and heel at home. Something to be said about that, I suppose. Nope, not a lot of likable people here, but there is one. A gal I failed to mention so far. Delia. Delia is a young black woman from the disenfranchised community that has to live outside the small town. Remember how things used to be bullshit, and still are bullshit, but used to be way more bullshit, but are still bullshit? You know what I'm fucking talking about. Lou stumbles across her one night when he's running from the outlaws, and he's taken with her immediately. And although Delia and her people are gracious enough to let the pale face join the party they're having, Delia's real interest is something that runs a little more on the magical side. Through the story, she comes in to check on Lou occasionally. She seems to be able to cross over and communicate with the deceased in her dreams, and she brings Lou a message from his long-dead little sister. And in the end, she works some magic deep in the woods, trying to save Lou, protect herself, and keep the wolves at bay. The wolves at bay? See what I did there? Yeah... I am sorry. I am sorry. Look, while I like Lou, Delia is undoubtedly the best character in this story, and this story is only the first of a continuing series. So although we don't see too much of her here, the potential for her is infinite as far as I'm concerned. And as to how things end up with her and Lou in this particular story, well, I'm not going to share that here, because it'd be better for you to figure it out on your own. This book is mysterious, and a little hard to penetrate your first go-round. I actually picked it up not knowing anything about it. I just saw those two names on the cover, and no, I needed to read it. Honestly, when I started doing this podcast, I thought if I ever did a book by Argentinian Edward Riso and American Brian Azarello, it would for sure be 100 Bullets, which was my favorite comic book For years and years, still one of my all-time favorites, but it's a long, interweaving, complex tale that's a little bit too ambitious for this podcast at this juncture. I'll get to it. But Moonshine, it isn't an afterthought. I wasn't settling here. We still get the signature flair of the creators. Risos controlled cartoonist chaos, beautiful and crude people and settings, violence and emotion played through each panel. Azzarello's penchant for writing slick city dialogue pours from the protagonist as it clashes with the country criminals like Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe meeting the cast of one of Jim Thompson's rural noir novels. It's the movie Lawless meets Public Enemy mixed with Godfather 2 and blended with an American werewolf in Paris. It's the beginning of a story. So much unfolded, yet so much more to be told. A good-looking, low-level, knock-around guy for the mob sent to Appalachian country to deal with those hard-boiled country-bred badass types that don't scare like the metropolitan mooks back home. A family mixed up in the occult and manifesting mythical creatures that terrorize and tear apart those that cross them, even if those that cross them are their own kin. This book doesn't break boundaries so much as it blends them, A mixture of the grim and gritty from different kinds of stories all anchored under the umbrella of tragedy. No one's safe. No one's innocent. Except maybe one. But Delia's story isn't done yet, and she's got plenty of road ahead of her to join the damned. As for Lou? Well, his story isn't finished either. But you get the feeling his final destination is somewhere deep down below. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Why Did You Make Me Read This, a comic book podcast. Just a reminder, this is part one of a two-part series. Next week will be the interview portion where I have my friend Melissa Moore on to kind of engage more with the story itself. If you'd like to support the podcast, give me some good ratings on whatever podcast app you use. You can go over to Twitter, find me there at Why Did You Comics. Just search the name for the show on Facebook if you want to follow me there. The fantastic music for this podcast is done by the talented R.J. Jones. Look for him on SoundCloud or YouTube. If you have some time and money to spare, check out the Minnesota Freedom Fund. It's an absolutely worthy cause. Or if you want to cycle your money and your time back into your own community, I implore you to do that as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.